and I got thrown out. Wow. I got thrown out of the diocese with the archdeacon screaming at me, spittle flying from his lips and his veins popping out. And this is October 96. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and today we have a special guest on the show. I wasn't able to participate in this week's episode. I'm on the road, but our other two usual suspects, Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, talk to the Reverend Dr. John Schuler. Matt, J.D., and I are going to try over the course of a couple non-sequential episodes starting this week to tell the origin story of the ACNA, but to do it through the eyes and from the perspectives of some of the men who were on the ground at the time. And you're in for a real treat in this first conversation with John Schuler. Dr. Schuler is the global leader of the New Anglican Missionary Society, which he has led since 1994. He's also currently interim rector of Christ the King Grace Church in Pauley's Island, South Carolina. He has assisted in growing the church on six continents and is often asked to teach at conferences on church growth and planting, discipleship, and leadership development. He and his wife, Cynthia, have been married for more than 48 years have three children and four grandchildren. John has served global churches for more than 45 years, and he has an amazing story to tell. I hope you enjoy it. Here's JD. It's a pleasure to have the Reverend Doctor, the Reverend Canon Doctor, John Schuler, with us. Is that a pro- the right way to say that? That's Reverend, that's Reverend the Canon, Anglican, Mary, that's Reverend the Anglican Doctor. That's right. Yeah. John is a uh, the the pre well Nick already did all this we don't have to go through that but it's great to have you with us John and as a church historian as a long term ordained um, clergyman as a friend as a mentor as a scholar there's all sorts of wonderful reasons um, to be excited about your presence here today and um, we're just glad you're here welcome to stand firm hey thank you it's wonderful to be with you guys I I admire what you're trying to do and. So, uh, I listen to you, and sometimes I agree with you. <laughs> well, that's, so you're the one. <laughs> More well, often tell, than not. Do tell. Um, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that you would listen to one, particularly that we were uh, talking well, yeah. about the ACNA, and that's when you um, you yeah. furiously contacted coming, me in order to <laughs> set the record straight. So we're, we, we're here to, to, to let us know, um, you know, what's really going on. So Well, it's not that I know what's really going on, but I've been at it. I've been at it longer than any of you three guys. I, I was um, called to the priesthood in 1968. Um, I was all of 22 years old. And um, my first day, my first day in seminary um, in Lexington, Kentucky, when there was, there was a small Episcopal seminary in Lexington, I lived in Kentucky. I was teaching school and um, the bishop, uh, of the diocese, William Robert Moody gave the opening sermon at the opening convocation for the for the seminary year, and he just had come back from Lambeth, 1968, and it was his third Lambeth. He had been the baby bishop 30 years earlier, and what I remember very vividly, not understanding it at all, being a kid that was raised in the church, but um, he said that there were... Um, there were voices at Lambeth 68 that worried him. Mm-hmm. He was concerned for the Orthodox witness of the Anglican family mm-hmm. in, at Lambeth 1968. Mm-hmm. And so that, that sort of seed went into my little head. I, I wasn't thinking at that time or dreaming even um, that my priesthood would go in the directions that it has. But I was able, when I finished my theological training, to stay on in England and do a church history degree at the University of Durham. So I've just always been intrigued by the history I'm living through and um, became aware of and first did not like and was quite resistant to um, the movement uh, for renewal that emerged in the 60s and then kind of began to sweep the Anglican world pretty extensively in the 70s. And so I've just kept track of things. I've always wanted to, uh, to know what was happening, and I've, I've, I've just paid attention, if that makes any sense. 
but I became a missionary priest in England. Um, my, my international experience there just changed the trajectory of my whole life. And, and so most of my years, I've, I've not been a, in a scholarly environment. I've tried to keep my, I've tried to keep my Orion. I've been an adjunct prophet in Ashoda and at, at Gordon Conwell and um, a place called CIU uh, here in, in South Carolina. Columbia International University. Sure. And, but um, the longer I've lived, the less I'm asked to speak because I've become more, <laughs> and, more and more um, determined that the, the, the direction that things are going is not good. <laughs> so I, I got involved in renewal and I got involved in trying to help the Episcopal Church have a different future. And uh, I gave my very best to that for really, I, I would say for 30 years. But by it, renewal, so you you mentioned uh, I, I was I was I was raised in the Episcopal Church. I was born in 1971, but I wasn't um, so I, I wasn't around maybe the, during the beginning of I think what you mean by the renewal movement. Yeah. But I remember very very clearly when I was in my you know single digits, people coming through in uh, our church down in Corpus Christi, Texas, with tambourines and uh, from the. Uh, we had we had something called a, a happening or not a happening but something else. It was some I forget what faith it's called. Alive? But was it faith alive? Faith, maybe it was, maybe it was faith alive. But it was a weekend. Yeah, faith alive. Faith alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. And after that weekend, everything changed about the church. It was it was a very different church after that that weekend. Uh, the music was different. The the ethos was different. I was a kid, so I didn't know I didn't know why or what exactly had happened. But people started acting differently and strangely. Um, I remember. Yeah, yeah, it, it was just, is, is, so is the renewal movement yeah. you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, that? yeah, it, it has, yeah. It, Matt, it had many streams, but um, um, but Faith Alive was a big piece of it, a, and an early piece, and that was more of an evangelical emphasis, that is, it was, it was really, it was really not uh, what we would later call charismatic, but it was definitely right. wanting to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ forward and to get people to make a, a decision to, to yield their lives to the Lord in a, in a very concrete way. And it was associated with the, the changing musical environment of America. Uh, you know, it, it, you guys wouldn't, I mean, it's just hard to realize how much things changed in the 60s. But th there was just this sweeping through of new excitement, new life, new hope. There, it was focused on the Lord. It was focused on Jesus and music. Hmm. And, and then it became a battle. There, you know, Texas, yeah. was ground, Texas was ground central, really, for several of these things. Um, did you say Corpus Christi? My wife's from San Antonio, and so oh. I, know, I know Corpus well. But, but yeah, there, there was just a lot of energy in Texas. Texas was a growing state. The, church, the Episcopal Church was growing in Texas, in lots of places. It's, it was a very vibrant era in Texas. And there were just varying degrees of, 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 of um, new life was, was emerging. Some of it was very focused on the Holy Spirit. Uh, some of it was focused on imitating uh, renewal movements in the Roman Catholic world. Um, you know, Curcio really, you know, came out of Spanish Roman Catholic uh, emphasis for a new, new, new beginnings. And Faith Alive, I'm not sure of the exact origin of it, but it had, I think it might have grown up originally in Texas. So there was this newfound sense that something old was being made new. Um, that, and that, I can say, um, can I say just from outside the tradition or our tradition now, as it were, I mean, that was not limited to, as you well know, the Episcopal Church or even the Roman Catholic. I mean, there was a because I, I went to a little Baptist church named Laura Lee Baptist Church down in Baton Rouge, uh, where my only baptismal certificate is uh, me dried and wet. There's two pictures of me. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, that's me, I promise. Um, but, you know, we had the similar experience, Matt. Like my parents went on a, a, a conference out in California uh, with a bunch of other people, like the, the elder board or whatever came back. And then all of a sudden we were like... <laughs> much different place tambourines and guitars and maracas and all sorts of stuff and so um again i have positive memories of that for by and large but it certainly was young and formative and interestingly enough one of liza my wife's formative um 
uh, mem memories of her childhood was driving all the way from Raleigh to a church in Ver Versailles, Versailles, Kentucky, you know, the high, the high court of Versailles. St. John's. That's right, where they had a Faith Alive weekend. And yeah. it was one of her formative single-digit yeah. uh, childhood memories because it was this massively long trip for a child to go to something called Faith Alive. And there, you know, you know, it only takes a spark to get a fire going, you know, all the, all the songs, but so anyway, not to take away from you, John, but I think it's, it's fascinating that you, your, your life is, is overlapping both within and without of the Episcopal church or the Anglican communion for that matter, um, this sort of worldwide renewal. And so we find ourselves, uh, well, continue to sketch out the, the, well, trajectory I, I, I'll try to be quick and that's not easy for me, the, 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 the talker and the historian in me, but but there was um, an ecumenical lay renewal movement in the 50s that was across denominations and Faith Alive and another group called Faith at Work both emerged in that, in that era. And then the charismatic movement began in California in 1960 with Dennis Bennett, who was an right. Episcopal priest. And that moved quickly through lots and lots of Episcopal um, places and then spilled into the Roman Catholic world and went global. It was re really quickly a, a, an Anglican re reality all over the world. Some places resisted, some places welcomed, but it, it started to change the face of the church um, pretty significantly for some who were affected by those things. And what it, what it brought to the fore was the Holy Scriptures and a personal relational walk with God, knowing, knowing the Lord in a way that you hear his voice. I mean, you're not just sitting there and someone tells you, but you, that, that sort of that inner reality of, of a heart baptized uh, person where you, 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 you know, you're so that was moving um, around the world. And um, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, I was, I was self-consciously a kind of Catholic Episcopalian. I, I was not a, bells and smells guy, but I, I grew up being taught that I was part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I wasn't a Protestant and I wasn't a Roman Catholic. Uh, um, I was an Anglican, you know, and um, but what you fight, you often uh, uh, succumb to, um, you know, and I got I got deeply affected by my six years in England. Mm. Um, I encountered the, the global evangelical Anglican world in, in, in England. And of course, the battle was on then between the evangelicals that were open to the work of the Holy Spirit in a new and fresh way and those who weren't. And, and there was kind of a back and forth battle going on, but it was changing the English church. And I, I was just there. I happened to be there. And I was assigned to a little Anglo-Catholic parish um, for which I thanked God after surviving, you know, as I, as I thought of it in, in those days, you know, surviving three years with these crazy evangelical people that seemed, that seemed to me more like Methodists and Baptists than any Anglicans that I'd ever known, and then um, get safely at home in a little Anglo-Catholic parish as a young curate, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Haldang parish. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and all at once, right, left, and center, people are being changed before our very eyes by the hand of God. It's, we just, it, it was beyond, it, 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 I mean, it stuns me still to remember how um, amazing that season was. And it was suddenly, it was suddenly clear to Father Davis, the rector and me, that what we said we believed about the Holy Trinity was really true. Um, that, that God, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit were, were real. And in, in a way we hadn't quite understood and we saw it and thought of it as we lived through it as the church being brought back to it, what it should be, that it, it, it had a, it had an inheritance, a traditional inheritance that, that we could call Catholic absolutely deeply. It had an evangelical inheritance the gospel and and the holy spirit was the operative uh, manifestation of god in the life of the church going forward and so we just sort of imagined that what was happening to us was we were being brought back to normal mm. we, we didn't give up anything that i remember we we still had mass we still wore 
chasubles. We still genuflected. We had mass, I mean, uh, confession on Friday and Saturday. But man, when, when that began in 1972, it, it just started rearranging the f- furniture of our minds, our, our, our whole understanding of what we were doing and how we were doing it and what, what was God's purpose in all this wonderful inheritance we had and how did we make it, how did we make it effective for the men and women, the vast majority of whom in Durham, England, who didn't give a flip about God or the church. And so we became a real missionary parish uh, and we started preaching and teaching like people should be converted. You know, I mean, it should <laughs> really that. happen. And, um, and it was the evangelicals thought that God had made a mistake, that the Holy Spirit was doing something in an Anglo-Catholic parish. And uh, the Protestants all thought that God couldn't use an Anglican. And the Roman Catholics were all trying to talk us into becoming Roman Catholics. <laughs> and, and, and we were just like, no, we think this is God, and we're going we're gonna to hang on uh, and see where it leads. So those years dramatically changed my understanding. I, I became an international Anglican. I way more than I realized became an evangelical Anglican, a, a Bible Anglican in a way that I'd never, ever uh, thought I would be or imagine myself. But I never stopped feeling that I'm a Catholic. I'm a Catholic Christian and, uh, and I'm an Anglican. And that's, that's my inheritance. That's my life. That's how God called me. That's what I've lived my life doing. But when we came back to America in 1975, to the Diocese of Southern Ohio, I'd become very missionary sensitive. You know, how are we doing? What's going on in this diocese? What parishes are growing? Who's, who's declining? Where's the ch- population changing? Is anybody starting new churches? And I found that when I started asking those questions, um, I started being pretty unwelcome. Uh, and, and I remember being confronted over and over and over with the, we're, we, we're, not, we're not focused on quantity, we're focused on quality. You know, and uh, and we didn't send you to England to get a PhD to come back here and talk like a Baptist. Uh, and I got accused of talking like a Baptist because I was like convinced that go and make disciples was like the mission. <laughs> this is the mission. <laughs> so and I discovered in 1975, 76, that the Episcopal Church had declined every year for 10 straight years numerically. And then when I did more research, I began to realize that it peaked as a percentage of the population in, in 1915, that from 1815 to 1915, the Episcopal Church grew every single year as a percentage of the population of the United States, which is, if you're in business, that's a really wonderful piece of data. But in 1915, it, it leveled off. We, 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 kept, we kept growing numerically, but as a percentage of America, we, we were plateaued. And in 65, we began to decline. And that's still true in 2022, not just for the Episcopal Church, no, for but sure. for the Anglican witness in North America uh, and in much of the, of the developed world. So I was hugely sensitized to missionary challenges and issues in North America and threw myself into it. You know, the bishop, the way the bishop dealt with me was to put me on the evangelical, when, the evangelism committee, uh, you know, to be put on the evangelism. You think something should change, then you, you go do that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I just Pretty, point out that I don't think it's coincidental or it's that, um, that the year of your renewal and uh, um, epiphany in your church was the same year that Matt was born. I just think we should point that out. Uh, so we should, um, it's painful for me, but it's a joy. It, it's kidding. a joy for me to be with you young guys. It, it, it is. I didn't mean that for an age thing. I mean, there was a disturbance in the force, obviously. Like, oh, yeah. Well, I think. That's true. <laughs> no, had nothing to do with the ages. It was that it was that yeah. the one was on yeah. the horizon. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I have uh, a question. So you, you're, sure, you're describing, um, you know, what, what I, I guess if I were a young man at the time, like you were, I would have been thinking, wow, okay, like you say, God, maybe God is restoring, restoring His church. But you also mentioned that even, you know before that, 1968, I think you said you had yeah. your bishop had come through and said, look, I've heard some very disturbing things at Lambeth. So 
So how how do those things, you know, the the the, the, the apparent restoration of the church going on in the 60s and 70s, how does that begin to intersect with the growing problems that you well, notice? It, it, yeah, good question. And maybe you can identify with this, Nick and Matt and, and JD, but I just couldn't imagine that it wouldn't happen, that that God wouldn't be, that I wouldn't live to see the, the church I loved restored, that, that there would be new life and new faith and new mission new energy, new impact in the culture. I mean, I just kept believing that that was what God wanted and that he had tapped my shoulder to be, to throw myself in the midst of it. And so I did. I mean, I, I became a bit of a, of a voice and a bit of a, of an influencer um, everywhere I went. I just, I just went to work, you know, uh, I, I lobbied for new work. New, I started several new churches. I got other people to start new churches. I went to conferences. I, I tried to learn how to be a full-fledged evangelical spirit-filled Anglican and still have anyone wanting to talk to me as an Anglican, <laughs> you know, I mean, how, how to live that. And I just, I didn't see, I had no appreciation in those years for the role of culture uh, as the container for authentic Christian faith and how much the, 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 the norms that I assumed would be the signs of, of, of effective restoration, new life would be, were cultural, uh, Anglican culture. Um, I, I, I just, I didn't see it. Uh, at all. I, I really, I didn't. So I think I was an idealistic, hopeful, we can turn this ship around kind of guy. And um, I, I tried to work the system uh, well, in every way, in every way I could, I tried to work the system. So you worked within the system and here you are some, you know, 30 years later or so um, in the ACNA and there's a lot of water has traversed under the bridge since then. But so, so within the system as a diocese episcopal episcopalian in the diocese of southern ohio to you know south carolina anglican Pauly's island um sketch some of that sort of the the history there and, and yeah, kind of yeah. from, from your perspective the, how that developed the the big the biggies are that um i got asked by the bishop to to go to a conference on evangelism <clears throat> i think in 1978 something like that and uh I encountered that there was just a lot of new life in the American church, not the Anglican church, but there was a lot of new life in the American church that was coming out of California. Um, there was this place I heard about Pasadena and Fuller, and that, that there were these things happening out there. Um, and there was an Episcopal um, uh, ministry out there called Episcopal Missionary Community, I think. Uh, Walter Hannum, who later would, re, would go to Ambridge when when Trinity was started. Um, so I, I made a trip out there to see Walter and uh, to talk to him and find out what was going on in his life. He'd been a missionary priest in Alaska and had been um, involved in the planting of a number of new churches in Alaska and had come to the conviction that the Episcopal Church had no clue about how to prepare missionaries. And so uh, decided to form a, a little ministry that would be a training year or a training season uh, for, for men and women that were being called to go overseas, which still in the 70s, there were a half a dozen people a year coming out of our denomination that went overseas. It was, it was a tiny, tiny number. Uh, but that, that was an eye-opener because I did encounter what came to be called the church growth movement. Um, I, I encountered a lot of wonderful uh, men from all over the world, all of whom were more informed about Anglican missionary history than most of the Anglicans I knew. They'd almost, to a man, been influenced by a priest named Roland Allen. Um, and uh, uh, Roland Allen had written uh, two books that have sti are still in print, uh, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, and then The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church. Mm. And um, I think the latter was 1927 when that was published. And the, the other was earlier, maybe 1910. But, but here were all these guys from all over the world telling all these amazing stories of God's hand on the church and new life all over the world. 
talking to me about an Anglican priest and, and the influence he'd had on them. And, and that, that was just um, a seminal uh, era for me. I had read Roland Allen in, in, in theological college in England, but I hadn't really taken it in very well because I was still fighting the evangelicals. <laughs> and uh, so that, that's a big turning point, 1978-79. And in, in that moment, I came to start to see that larger parishes could buck the tide. And so I started thinking a bigger parish is better. Uh, and how, how can some of the bigger parishes uh, help turn this Episcopal system around. And um, it was around that time I got called to Knoxville, Tennessee. And I, I took over a church that for the Episcopal church in those days was sizable, thousand, thousand people on the rolls anyway. And, um, yeah. and I began 75 to, on a Sunday. <laughs> no, that was true. It, it was, it was about a 400. It was like a 400. Sure at three 440 at three services kind of sun uh, place and right but it was it was it was uh, full of itself and it was growing and it was it, it was well positioned and so for the next 11 years i rode that horse um and we we just got stronger and stronger and stronger and that gave me the ability to have influence in the diocese to some extent around the country and so i traveled a lot um, in those years, I, 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 I spoke and preached and taught for a new vision of the future, a missionary vision. Um, I, got, I got a lot of traction uh, for a while. But in that season, I began to be more and more convinced that we had doctrinal problems that ran deep. And um, that the, the growing liberal revisionist element in the Episcopal Church was gaining the ascendancy. Mm. I think I, I, I've, I fully grasped that in the 80s, um, that Edmund Browning was intentionally leading the church astray. Mm. Uh, even though he had this minute, he had this, this, this traditional perspective, people said, oh, he's a missionary bishop in Hawaii, and he's, he's a great guy and all this. But uh, but he he was in bed, <laughs> probably a bad a bad thing. But he was definitely supporting in a clandestine way the the emerging gay movement that, of course, now we know as LGBTQ plus, um, and and he was not going to stop. And I saw that in the eighties, and I didn't know how how deep the cancer had gone, but I saw it pretty pretty clearly. But that's also 88 is when the global Anglican family was challenged to embrace a decade of evangelism. George Carey called for the whole Anglican communion to do that. And the Episcopal Church went along with it on the surface. And so I became kind of Mr. Decade of Evangelism mm -hmm. in, 80, in 88 in my in my parish, my my region of the country, my 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 diocese, and to some extent nationally, I got on the board uh, of the uh, for the large churches with the the eight fifteen, and I was I was a traveling fool. I had a great staff. I had a wonderful ministry in Knoxville. I never wanted to leave it, but I, the the need was desperate, and I began to tell people I can preach evangelistically. I mean, I understand what can happen when the gospel is let loose, and so I I started drawing on all those English years that I had kind of kept under under wraps in order to to not be an outcast. And um, yeah, those those were amazing years. Um, and the longer I did all this, the more I saw there are two principal works, I thought, renew what is old and start what, what is new. And, and I got clearer and clearer that I was not welcome to renew the old <laughs> in most places. Um, and, but I seemed to be given some real grace from God to start new things. And so I went from lobbying for, preaching for, teaching about new church planning to becoming Mr. 
church planter priest. And, mm. um, and so in 93, uh, started the North American Missionary Society uh, to plant new, new churches in North America. And, um, but my doctrinal convictions ran so deep that it didn't take long for most of the Episcopal Church to not be interested in what I was trying to do. And I, I came to the conviction uh, at that time that we could start new churches faster than the than the liberals could kill the old church. <laughs> that I, I really thought we could. Well, here's um, what I want to ask, John, is like how, okay, so it's fascinating to me that you you opened with an anecdote from Lambeth 68. Um, and then, of course, we have Lambeth 98, which um, was an altogether different um, but it's, um, animal. But so in the early 90s... I was, I was there. I right. Was there. Well, I want to hear this. But in, so in the 90s, this is what I'm interested in, because I am I was coming into the Episcopal Church um, uh, the late 90s. So 98, 99, really 99 was when I came. But, um, but I have done some research and in, in 98 Lambeth was when I, you know, was still fresh and hot when I joined and it was shoved in my face as this is what was Anglican. Like, don't worry about what's happening in the Episcopal Church. This is Anglicanism. So in the early 90s, you were obviously encouraged by something. And yet by the time 98 came around, the entire communion felt it necessary to clarify these issues. And then shortly thereafter, we know that the Episcopal Church um, just completely rejected it so like how i mean help me or help us get a sense of what what were you hoping to have happen that didn't happen in the 90s and then as a result of what didn't happen how did we get to what what and how did you get on the other side of that hopefulness turning into um what else can we do with this church that's kind of uh, is that that makes sense yeah it does um nams was begun um, by Alden Hathaway calling it into existence. Um, and um, <clears throat> Alden, I, I love Alden. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. He's still alive, but he was Bishop of Pittsburgh. He was very identified with uh, the renewing forces in the, in the Episcopal Church. And of course, he was the bishop where Tr- Trinity had been planted. And he and I uh, came together saying the same words and meaning different things. Uh, he said, we need a North American missionary society to plant new Great Commission churches in North America, the same way the South American missionary society is planting new Great Commission churches in South America. And I thought he meant new Great Commission churches. <laughs> and, and what he meant is new Episcopal churches that are Orthodox. And... Um, um, th- we didn't see we didn't see that at all clearly because we were saying the same language right within within weeks or months of starting NAMS, 37 dioceses in the United States asked me to come and speak about what we were doing and why and so I was I was engaged in conversation with 36 seven bishops about forming a partnership to assist them to gain a church planning vision and begin church planning work. And then I got invited to Little Rock uh, in 1996, and uh, a group of laity, wonderful bunch at the cathedral, uh, wanted to start a new church. And um, they called their old friend, Ed Salmon, who was then at that moment bishop in South Carolina, um, and asked for some counsel. And he said, well, you guys need to call John Schuler." Uh, because by that time I had moved here, I was in Ed's diocese. He was my bishop. Uh, he was blessing the work, and so I engaged this, these people with great excitement, only to discover their bishop didn't want them to start a new church. And I said, "Well, then I, I can't come." I mean, <laughs> I'm an Episcopal priest. It's a ministry to the Episcopal Church. I, yeah, um, but then I thought, well. He just has to be confused. I mean, these, these are wonderful people, and they want they want to plant a new Episcopal congregation in Arkansas, and they're not asking for any money. They just they want to do it. You know, they're faithful people. They're they're wonderful. How can he not want this? So I said, well, look, if you buy me a ticket, I'll come out there and meet with you guys. But I'm going to set up an appointment with the bishop, and so th- that's what we did. And I set up an appointment with Bishop Larry Mays, and. Um, he treated me very politely, uh, but said that, that they didn't they didn't want a new parish in the diocese, and 
um, they had a plan for how they'll do new parishes and these people weren't in the plan and, and they didn't, they didn't want them. They didn't want them to do it. And I thought, well, he'll think better of this after he prays for a day or two. And so, you know, I went back a second time a few months later and I had another polite conversation didn't get anywhere. The people were so impressive. I was like, Oh God, if you would give us people like this everywhere in America, we'll take the nation. You know, third time I went back, the canon to the ordinary who was archdeacon, maybe it was archdeacon. Yeah. It was archdeacon. He and the archdeacon sat down with me and it took about three minutes before the archdeacon was manifesting to me that he was an enemy of God. Wow. And I got thrown out. Wow. I got thrown out of the diocese with the archdeacon screaming at me, spittle flying from his lips and his veins popping out. And this is October 96, I think. And um, the the group were meeting that night at a Roman Catholic seminary in the chapel. And and I was to take the service uh, because what I would do, I'd fly out there. I knew the canon law. I mean, I, I knew I knew that by going where the bishop didn't want me, I was putting myself at some risk. But in those days, if you if you were a, a priest in good standing in one diocese, you didn't have to have permission for 30 days. You, you could minister in another diocese for 30 days. So I, I would go out for a few days and then I'd be out again. So so that and I'd always do a service. We'd have a potluck and a service. So that night we're, we're gathered about 75 people by this time in six months from like 15 to 75 people are gathering around this idea. And, um, and this doctor and his wife, both medical doctors came up to me about 10 minutes before the service, holding a brand new baby. She was, she was three weeks old. And they said, we know this is uh, probably a, uh, a little late to ask, but we, we wondered if you could baptize our daughter tonight. And because I'd met them and I'd been around them three times by this time, I knew they were fervent in their faith. They were, they were very faithful people. And I said, I, I said, I would do it. But when I took that baby in my arms that night, I suddenly thought when I baptize this baby tonight, I may never be welcome in the church of my birth for the rest of my life. I, that thought just came through me. I mean, it, I could almost cry when I think about it right now after all these years. But I baptized that baby, and I went back uh, to uh, South Carolina, and the board met about two weeks later. And I told them what had happened. I'd been keeping them up to date, and I said, we're going to have to decide if we help these people or we don't, because the bishop is adamantly going to resist us. Uh, But I really think the Lord is with these people, and how do we tell them no? And so the board grappled with that, and the board voted to allow me to help these people start a new church in Little Rock, Arkansas, at which point one of the bishops on the board stood up and resigned from the NAMS board. Wow. Um, he was the Bishop of West Missouri at the time. Um, I can't, I can see his face, but I can't remember his name. And so I began to help them and man, Oh Lord have mercy. The hornets came out of the nests. I mean, it, it was, I went from 37 bishops being willing to answer my mail to three. It took, it took six months. The bottom fell out of the ministry, money, everything. It was unbelievably difficult for me and Ms. Cynthia, because we were living by faith. We started this thing from scratch, you know, and, um, but we, the board, there were three bishops on the board and um, we felt like God was, we, we felt we had to go forward. We just were not going to turn back. And, um, but it, it, it severed all my ties with the Episcopal church. Mm. Um, Ed Salmon was courteous, but not happy. And by 97, the general convention in 97 was in Philadelphia and um, Browning would be finishing his run. I think, I think I'm right about that. I can't remember. I might, might have my, my presiding bishops confused. But anyway, there was going to be an election of a new PB. And there was a conservative candidate from Southern Ohio, an African-American. Mm-hmm. And um, then the, the Bishop of Chicago, um, who was a complete revisionist. And I, w- I went 
uh, had a you know had a booth and all that stuff. I was at the at the convention. Did you have some um, name tags and little flyers and things that you can? Yeah, buttons. yeah, handing out stuff. Right, yeah, I was, right. yeah, we. I'm with Nams. Yeah, yeah, NAMS. yeah. We, right. yeah. I was a deputy. I was a deputy in '94, and I think that's when I thought I'm not going to live to see the Episcopal Church turn toward orthodoxy. I think in my heart I felt it in '94, but in '97, when they when they elected the revisionist. And the conservative crossed the podium across the stage and gave him a big imbrasio. I mean, like, okay, you won the election, you know? And I was like, we got to walk out of here. Mm. I mean, we have just elected a man that is not faithful. And, it, and the bishops know it. They know it. It's not a secret that the Bishop of Chicago is probably bisexual in a relationship with a man and a woman at the same time, married and also having a clandestine relationship, and has, a, and has a diocese full of, of, of people who are all over the map. And um, I kept thinking there's going to be somebody in this House of Bishops that says this won't stand. I, I, I'll reconvene across the street mm. with anyone that wants to meet for prayer. But this, this is, and no one like well, it. Wouldn't no that have been something? Goodness. Well, you know, believe it or not, we all thought John Howe was going to do it. We all believed John Howe would do it, and he disappeared. Uh, John, if you ever hear this, I still love you, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to rag on you. But he, he was so chagrined. He was so depressed. He, he literally disappeared. We didn't see him for, for the next couple of days in mm. the convention. He just. He was, he was not anywhere to be seen. And I left that convention going, it's over. It's over okay. for me. I cannot be faithful to the Lord in the way that they, the, the Anglican family has taught me to be faithful and, and remain in the Episcopal Church. So, so I suggested we, we form a, a ministry or a group. We just get together. I said, let's, let's get the 50 rectors. <laughs> this is how foolish I was. Let's find the 50 You could have gone rectors. for 70. That would have been more. Let's go for the 50 rectors in, in America in churches large enough that they can resist the diocesan system who are gospel men and who have been there at least five years, and their parish won't turn on them <laughs> if they make if they make a bold stand. And so um, we went after that number. We got twenty eight guys, and they flew in here for three days to South Carolina, and we we prayed and talked. And out of that, we formed what was called the First Promise Movement. I remember that. Uh, and and we we took our stand on the the seventy nine ordinal, where the very first question that a priest yeah. is asked when he's ordained is, will he be loyal to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of Christ as this church has received the same? And so that comes before then, the, and be faithful to the, to the Episcopal Church and its canons and all that. And so we said, we're going to stand on that because we're being asked to do what is contrary to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of Christ as the church received it. And so First Promise was born. And, uh, and we... Movement. And, and, and within days, guys were in shock. We, nobody imagined what started happening to the, to the guys that signed. And, you know, one of the rectors of the largest church in America had signed, but by the time he flew home, he asked to be removed from the list. Hmm. Uh, and if you're listening, you know who you are. And so, I mean, I think wisely he recognized, holy crying out loud, we are in deep doo-doo. And he didn't want to lose his church. And I, I, don't, I don't fault him for that now. But at the time, I thought it was kind of felt a little disloyal to the rest of us. But, but like, we, we, we were in to jump so, first. I'll be after we, you. Yeah, we were in so much trouble so fast um, that I recommended that we ask for Archbishop Moses Tay's help. And Moses Tay was the Archbishop of Southeast Asia, Bishop of Singapore. And I knew he was bold for the gospel and was adamant about orthodoxy and faithfulness to the scripture and the historic formularies of the church and was in a province that didn't ordain women. And so we made a trip to Singapore and uh, three bishops and me. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a major turning point. And so in 98... Uh, while, in, while in Singapore, 
the archbishop said, would your bishop in South Carolina um, let you come under my care if, and would your board let you do, do some ministry out here? I said, well, of course. And he, I said, it's a praying board. And, um, but I mean, what would you want me to do? And he said, well, sometimes a bishop has special needs. That's all he said. <laughs> and I said, well, I have a praying board. And, and so a week later, he asked Cynthia and me to move to Thailand <laughs> and take over Christ Church Bangkok. Uh, and then after saying yes, after three or four tumultuous days in our life, um, he called again and said, would Ed Salmon send your letter? And I, I didn't understand it, but he, I said, Bishop, why would, why would he send my, I'm not going to, because he was asking me for a short term. He, you know, I was going to be there between vicars, okay? And he said, well, if your bishop will let you bring it, I could keep it. And I, it, it, he didn't have to say another word. I, I suddenly went, oh, I can go anywhere in the world as an Anglican priest, and I can preach and teach the gospel. And, and if they don't like me, I'll just say, take it up with my bishop. And, <laughs> Sounds and, familiar to some of us on this call, <laughs> not me. You know, and so, and so, so, you know, the, 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 the iceberg parted. I mean, it was like in 96, I was on one side and on 98, I was on the other. Mm. And um, I never looked back. Um, and uh, I, I left this diocese in 98 and I stayed away canonically until 2018 mm. um, because it just, I never had a problem again. And God was making the work of NAMS global. That, that, that was an undercurrent I haven't even mentioned, but our work was expanding around the world. And so it just took me out of the battle right. uh, in, in a way, but, but my work in North America just died when I, when we began to help Little Rock and it, it's never recovered. I mean, I still can call most of the bishops cause I knew most of them when they were a lot younger uh, and they'll talk to me, but they, they don't ever ask for my, they, they've never wanted NAMS to have an active role in North America. Mm -hmm. But I kept watching the historian in me is like keeping track of everything. And uh, in 2000, um, it was decided to make three bishops uh, and the Anglican mission would be formed eventually with two. And um, I was in the midst of all that and watching it happen and, and then watch the division that started to occur between the mission and the, the world of Bob Duncan. I was in seminary when that happened at, at VTS and wow, you, I mean, you, <laughs> The outrage expressed by every professor, all of them, I mean, we heard it on, in Daily Chapel, don't be part of this group. This group is, <laughs> is so uh, divisive and schismatic, and yeah, and that just increased my my admiration of you guys. I'm I want to just say I, my admiration for you is high, even though I've never been with you before today, uh, but I, I thank, thank you, God, all three of you guys. Um, yeah. I do have a question about something. I, mean, I remember what I was going to ask earlier. Uh, one of my former colleagues from Stanford who no longer writes for us, but he's still a good friend. She w she always thought that one of the reasons why the movement for, I guess, reformation, renewal, or whatever in the 60s and 70s didn't take hold is, is, that, is that the progressives, I, I use that in square, scare quotes, the progressives knew how to work the system. Absolutely. They, 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 at a parish level, they knew, okay, we need, we need to get on the vestry. Yeah, at the diocesan true. level, they knew. Okay, we need to get on the uh, on the on the you know the, the diocesan committees. Whereas whereas a lot of the maybe charismatics, more 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 kind of faith alive type evangelicals were thinking, okay, well the Holy Spirit is going to take care of this, so we just need to pray. Um, and so no one was willing to do the work of the political work, very political work, of of getting onto these committees, putting people forward for elections those sorts of things. And so, and so we lost the structural battle 
because we weren't really willing to fight it. Is that, would you say that that's a good? I, I think that's very fair, Matt. I think another element, uh, Albert Moeller spoke about this this morning on the briefing, uh, you know, that, that there's still an opportunity to, to make a difference uh, if Christians don't just be so passive as all these changes are happening around us. But um, I definitely think that was true. The, 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 there is no doubt in my mind that we have lived through a devilish takeover. There has been a spiritual takeover from darkness. Darkness has taken over in, in places where light is meant to prevail. And that was going on long before most people knew it was happening, much longer than, than, than people realize. And sadly, the devil is very, very wise in lots of ways about how to bring things down. And, um, and, and most of the most loyal, prayerful, godly clergy of the church, lay, lay people, clergy, bishops, they, were, they, they couldn't conceive that people were doing the things they were doing um, behind the scenes, in mm-hmm. the dark. Um, uh, they, they, they didn't they gave, a, they gave the benefit of the doubt to people who were absolutely determined to, to bring down the truth of the gospel, but had every uh, desire for the power and the prestige and the money and the influence that the Episcopal Church had. Um, well, and that continues to this day. I mean, it, it's hard not to hear when you talked about in 97, the um, quote-unquote conservative candidate walking across the dais to um, embrace the the new presiding bishop and sort of the naivete, if not outright sort of self-deception that that represents, because it persists down to this day. I mean, I remember um, you mentioned Bishop Howe, who I have great affection for also. I mean, Liza and I moved down um, as newlyweds. Like we, we flew out of Pittsburgh to our honeymoon and landed in Vero Beach, Florida, specifically to go to his diocese to go to Trinity. And I was shocked that when I arrived at Trinity that not every single um, you know, quote unquote conservative bishop uh, refused to send their students anywhere else but Trinity. And that they had this kind of, I don't know, the same similar... Um, uh, well, I think it, in retrospect, it has to be seen as naivete as to the effect of a non-Orthodox seminary on the formation of a future clergy, because, um, you know, across the board, the bishops who had the authority, as far as I can tell, one of the main responsibilities they have is gatekeeping for future clergy. And the fact that, um, you know, even my class alone with, in Central Florida, which was a, which was a, a strong diocese, um, we were, you know, two of 15 who had gone to Trinity and, you know, he had EDS, CDSP, um, you know, all these other uh, uh, schools and fast forward 20 years and you see, uh, well, that fruit of that um, in part is that you have this this um, dilution um, or or or, um, or compromise witness, for at least the very least of many of the people who started their journey um, in otherwise conservative dioceses. I mean, I remember Steve Knoll wrote a wrote an article which was very influential to me back in the early 2000s where he basically said if all of the conservative quote unquote conservative bishops in the Episcopal Church would would endeavor to simply refuse to let their seminarians go anywhere else but Trinity or Nishota I don't know if he said Nishota but certainly as someone who worked and helped form Trinity then perhaps we got a shot you know maybe we have a fight and I think you know we we can we can second guess history all we want but certainly that wasn't tried um, in any significant way. And what we see, John, this is what I'm getting to, we see in the ACNA, um, again, I'm not necessarily saying everyone should go to Trinity, although I am on the board and I do love it and I'm a graduate, so there we go. I mean, but, but nevertheless, I think that we have, we have to learn something from the history of the past 50 years with respect to the, the optimism and then the fracturing uh, that should inform um, our formation, especially going forward, and yeah. our concern here on Stand Firm, um, as practitioners, and you know, hopeful, um, hopefully, we'll be sitting speaking to much younger men than we are someday, uh, still in the same church, having being grateful that our grandchildren are being catechized and and raised up in the Anglican tradition. Um, but that's certainly not guaranteed. I mean, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, but they may as well. They may they have against many denominations, and and very well may against ours. But for the the faithful, courageous witness of, of Anglicans going forward. And so to that end, 
John, you know, we got to get you back for another hour on the years <laughs> between 2003 to 2018. But, <laughs> but giving what you have seen, what you've experienced, if you could leave us, the the people picking up the baton and moving forward, uh, something of your um, challenges, concerns, and opportunities for uh, the ACNA as you see them. Yeah. I'm sorry, I've, 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 I've probably spent too much time getting to where we are, but there's an awful lot more to say. This has been fascinating. I, 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 I want to say that, again... Um, it's hard to keep me and Mac silent for so long without... Uh, <laughs> it, I, I, was telling, I was telling J.D. before we all convened that in 1991, I came home from a sabbatical in the Holy Land, which means three months in England. Um, I was in England for three months. I came back and went immediately to a conference in, in uh, Colorado at, in order to hear a man named Peter Drucker, who had begun to have some influence on my life by reading some of the things that he was writing. And I wanted to hear him um, speak. And the, the conference was titled The Church in the 21st Century, and it was 1991. So one of the things he said that night that changed me forever was he said, the 21st century is already here, gentlemen. Uh, it's a calendar date. Uh, everything that's going to shape the 21st century has already begun. It's already in play. And we're, we're facing an epical uh, shift in the culture of the world, unlike anything that's been seen before, although there are examples of it. And when these great shifts happen, a, no, a number of things um, are true and a number of things aren't. And then he kind of went on, but he eventually said to this hand, this room full of pastors, I was, I think, the only Anglican in the room, but um, he said, um, you gentlemen have three things to work with going forward if you're going to be faithful to Christ. Um, you have the eternal truth, you have the available tools and you have the culture you're given, and you have to be found faithful. Uh, but 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 all the here's the here's here's the kicker: all the major institutions and organizations of the world are built on presuppositions that are no longer true. And if they don't, if they don't restructure in the light of the new realities, they're all going to die because, because the ground has shifted. And, and I sat in that room that night and I thought, that is true of my Anglican family. We, we are operating globally on presuppositions which we never talk about, we never think about, we don't discuss, that are no longer true. And we're, our systemic breakdowns are related to the fact that we're, we're not culturally connected to what we're actually living in, in a way to make a difference. Um, and uh, it, it, it really set me on a very different trajectory as I thought, prayed, read, started to try to understand culture and um, the influence of Anglican culture. You know, J.C. Ryle is someone that, that had a real impact on me by reading years ago. And I remember him talking about the prayer book, um, the, 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 the assumption that we, he called it the charitable presupposition. The charitable presupposition of the Anglican family of the church is that if you come on Sunday and you say these prayers, that you believe them, you know? but you, you believe them. That's a charitable presupposition. You know, if you kneel down and make your confession and then come to communion, we, we give it, we charitably presume you've repented and you should come. And I think that is that charitable presupposition, even to this day, is still crippling our, our family dramatically because because doctrinally and uh, culturally and uh, theologically, uh, it, 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 everything has shifted. <laughs> and so we want to keep, this goes back to the birth of ACNA, in my opinion. We, and I'm, I've been this way for my whole life. I, 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 can't, I can't throw the stone. I live in a glass house. We want to preserve the form that we have known and be orthodox. We don't want to even talk about what if what we're trying to preserve 
is not what the gospel needs now. What if the work of the kingdom actually requires that we lay down some of these things that are so precious to us, that have come to have so much meaning to us, and we can invest them with deep theological and biblical uh, understanding? But if you analyze, okay, how many of the how many of your children are following Christ in the Anglican Church? How many of your grandchildren are following Christ in the Anglican Church? Um, how many of the kids that were in your confirmation class thirty years ago are following Christ in the Anglican Church? How many of the dioceses of the of the of the country are growing because new converts are coming to Christ through their efforts and their witness? And when you start asking those questions, you go, hmm, well, I don't I don't want to I, I don't I don't want to talk about those things. And so I think that in large measure, ACNA is filled with people trying to preserve something that's beautiful and wonderful and means a lot to me. But if you have a missionary heart <laughs> that we should be discipling the nations, then you go, whoa, is this, is this the best way to do it? <laughs> you know, for years, I used to tease and say, I didn't think I was one, but of course I am. I said, I don't want to become an Amish Anglican, <laughs> you know, um, I, I just don't want to be Mennonite. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to be this sweet little Anglican guy with a sweet little parish in, in a city of 10,000, like in Bangkok, when I got to Bangkok, Christ church was founded in 1850. I came, uh, in, uh, 1998. It was still the only Anglican church in the in the nation of Thailand. Bangkok had 50,000 people when the congregation was formed. When I was there, Bangkok was 12 million. But everybody that went to the Christ Church was just delighted to be worshiping with other Anglicans on Sunday morning. And they actually liked it if I preached the gospel, or at least some of them. Um. <laughs> That's well, interesting, because you mentioned... Sorry, uh, I guess we're running out of time, aren't we? But I, I did have this one thing, because you were... When when J.C. Ryle talks about charitable assumptions, he's talking about, I think, you know, when someone comes up for communion, we're not going to like. Actually, he uh, was ta actually, actually he was talking about the the um, the declaration that a child is regenerate. Oh, OK, yeah, right. That's right. Because it's a Baptist. It was in the baptism pamphlet. That's right. Um, so so but we're not. So I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but is we need to always preach the gospel as uh, 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 not assuming not assuming that even our own people understands the basics of the Christian faith. I mean, we, we want to work through the text and that we're given on us in the morning, but, but if we just assume, if we just assume that our people, even if they've been there for 20 years, yeah, understand that they have nothing to offer of themselves and that they, their, their hope lies only in the work of Christ, the person of Christ. If they don't get that, and they may not get that. Yeah, uh, we need to we need to keep that front and center, no matter what our what our churchmanship is. That's yeah. that's that's the, the main thing. Is that kind of what I I think that's true, and I I think you know that's one of the lasting in, uh, influence of the evangelical awakening of the 18th century uh, in my life, and that is the the coming to the fore. And I think that was also true in the Puritan era. I think the coming to the fore of the need for personal yes. conversion, uh, that, that to be born again, to, to be born again of the Spirit of God is not something that happens because you were brought to the waters of baptism as a baby. That, there, that That's not wrong to have done that, but that if, there, if right. you assume, therefore, you're a Christian. These people right. are Christians. They were baptized, and so we don't have to, we don't have to think the way the gospel. Your question. Well, you're getting you're, in, you're getting John to you know. I think that the that which is being or tempted being preserved, both in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican, the ACNA and the Anglican Communion, for that matter, to its detriment, um, has less to do with specific manifestations and more to a general um, sort of posture over against the world. I.e., friendship with the world is what they value more than all. You know, uh, politeness, sort of respectability, um, a, a, a seat at the cultural table, 
And, you know, we, we know for a fact from James, you know, that um, the quickest way to become God's enemy is to seek favor and friendship with the world. I mean, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And again, I'm not saying that we go out and we, we try to um, shock and, and awe and horrify people with, with, our, um, with our lives. But, you know, as we've spoken numerous times here, if, for instance, some of the founding documents of the ACNA with respect to the great cultural controversies of the day uh, were simply upheld and explicated, namely the authority of scripture, the uniqueness of Christ and God's design for, for men and women with respect to you know, all of their relations, um, well, that's going to put you at enmity with the world very quickly. And to the extent that we see people in the ACNA who otherwise should know better, like these are our founding documents. These are the, you know, we're listening to the to the history of the struggle. We we have all, to various degrees, as we said before, borne the um, borne the the um, arrows, slings and arrows. And yet here we are, um, still wringing our hands over crosswords, um, you know, uh, sideways glances and otherwise um, contemptibility from an unbelieving world to our church. And so I think, again, John, I, there's so much more we could say about this. And it is, you are an, um, a, a dear friend and an inspiration and a, um, and a um, mentor and all the things that one would want to have um, from an older priest talking to a younger priest. Um, but we are, uh, you know, hopeful for the future, and we are, um, you know, we're committed to the um, standing on the shoulders of giants, and are, um, of course, uh, not sure of what the future may bring. But we do know that, uh, in whatever whatever way, shape, or form, um, courage and commitment to the gospel will bring forth fruit. Yes, uh, for the Lord's promised His. Um, that the the harvest is plentiful, um, and so and the laborers are few. Amen. Uh, yeah, I think it's. I think we're alive. I'm convinced we're alive in a time of global reformation. I think the whole the church uh, in the world everywhere is being challenged. Um, I, it's not unique to our denominational family, and the the question that we at faithful folks have to ask is, well, what is that? What does it mean, Lord? What What are you wanting reformed? What What parts of what What parts of this might need to be reformed? Might be getting in the way. Somebody said to me a, a few years back, "You have a perfect system for the results you're getting." <laughs> yeah. And, and not the, my big fear for ACNA is that we're repeating an enormous number of the same systems that got us where we are. And I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about that. And I think part of it is our culture of kindness and politeness and, and our, our, our history of being kind of the chaplains to the powerful. Mm, that's right. um, that, which is a cultural that, that you mentioned. Yeah. Well, well all the, of these things you're saying, John, just mean that you have to come back on. Uh, all right. Well, listen, to, thank uh, you so much. I, I hope I'll get to meet Nick another time. You certainly will. You certainly will. He was just traveling, as we know, but um, yeah. it's a great joy, John. We'll continue to pray for you and your ministry at Christ the King Grace up there in Pauly's Island. And um, of course, your extensive um, knowledge, we'll hope, will continue to be disseminated down through the ranks so that we are um, we won't be befall the old adage of those who are, don't know the past are destined to repeat it. We're hoping that yeah. we can learn something a little bit. Well, some of you young guys, I want you to hold up my arms. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Try to there prevail go. in the battle. Yeah. You've got Thank it, you John. So, thank All you right. so much, Matt God and JD. Bless. Thank you. You too. God bless you. That is our episode for this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, please be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. We are, as always, very grateful that you took the time to join us today. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch, and a special huge thank you to John Schuler. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 